Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, coming at you from St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Two very special guests on the program. Dr. Aaron Seyal is an emergency physician at North York General Hospital. He runs a weekly minor fracture clinic at that hospital. As well, he is the co-director of North York General Hospital's Emergency Medicine Update Conference, which is the largest emergency conference in Canada. He's also the director of CASTED, a full-day CME-accredited hands-on emergency department orthopedics course. We also have with us today Dr. Natalie Mommen. She's a full-time emergency physician at Toronto East General Hospital. She did her residency training at U of T with additional training in sports medicine. She's currently a lecturer at the University of Toronto and has won multiple teaching awards. Let's jump right into our first case. A 67-year-old woman on chronic steroids for severe COPD who loses her balance and falls on her left hip about one week prior to her emergency visit. She complains that it still hurts to walk. She's triaged to the minor area, and the triage nurse notes that she fell from standing and that she's ambulating well, and that she's also complaining of groin pain. I remember being taught that if a patient can walk, that it ain't a broken hip. Is this true? Certainly the orthopods would like you to think that in the middle of the night, but no, sadly, it is not true. You can have a a fracture of the hip and still be able to ambulate. You don't have to have the classic uh, shortened and externally rotated leg to have a a fractured proximal femur. What are the possibilities here in terms of orthopedic injuries that she has? Common things being common. So a hip fracture clearly has to be at the top of the list of things you can worry about. She's only 67, but she's on chronic steroids. She probably has obviously some degree of osteoporosis. You can easily get pubic rami fracture. So if you see somebody and their hip x-ray is negative, you think they may have injured something they can't weight bear, always look at their rami. A lot of these elderly folks have small, little impacted fractures that you know are treated non-operatively for the most part. It's not the same thing as a big trauma and a pelvic fracture. Uh, but it makes it difficult for them to wait bear if they came from a nursing home, they go back to the nursing home. But if they're from home, they actually need to be admitted to hospital until they're safe to get up and around. You can have anterior superiliac Spine injuries, you can have pelvic fractures uh, higher up on the wing. You can have acetabular fractures that can occur. There are a number of things around the hip that can be sore, that can be injured. Certainly, it can be soft tissue. But soft tissue is almost until proven otherwise. If you were walking before, you fell, you hurt your hip, you have hip pain, you've got to be worried. You've got some sort of an occult fracture. X-rays are not a perfect test. If you do see a pubic ramus fracture on the X-ray, do you need to go looking for hip fractures and other fractures in the area? But we cannot use it. It's nothing that we look further for. Yeah, there was a study of more than 100 elderly patients who were unable to weight bear after a fall. Uh, they all had MRI, and there wasn't a single patient with a fracture of the femoral neck who also had an associated fracture of the pelvic ring or vice versa. The bottom line there is if you do find uh, a pelvic ring fracture or a hip fracture, you can pretty much stop there and don't have to be uh, searching for further fractures in in that area. With this patient, they go on to have an x-ray of their hip, which looks normal. What kind of things on the physical exam, when you initially assess the patient, or if you see a negative x-ray and then you go back and assess them again, what kind of things on physical exam are really the most useful in terms of going on to further imaging for someone who 
you'd suspect might have a hip fracture. Really three things on physical exam. The first being a new inability to weight bear, new pain on axial loading of the leg, and pain on straight leg raise. If the patient could straight leg raise before and they can't straight leg raise now, that's a fractured hip until proven otherwise. The occult fractures tend to be subcapital fractures. Uh, they're impacted. They're harder to see on x-ray, obviously, because they're occult. But about 5% of subcapital fractures are occult. And they'll tend to have a little more medial pain, a little more groin pain, because it's, it's a subcapital fracture. That's also where you'll find pubic ramus fractures. If you press on the pubic symphysis and find that that's where their discomfort is, that sometimes suggests it's more of a ramus fracture as opposed to the hip or when you're pressing laterally. But they both can have medial pain, which can sometimes be a little bit of uh, a clue that maybe what we're dealing with here is, a, is an impacted subcapital fracture. What about for the patients that they're in so much pain you can barely examine them? Is there, is there anything else you can do? Percussion test where you can actually put your stethoscope on their symphysis pubis and uh, percuss the patella on each side. And if you have a fracture, then the effusion will lessen the transmission of sound to the bell of your stethoscope, therefore giving you an index of suspicion that uh, there is actually a fracture there. So if you have a young patient with really good bones who has a high-velocity trauma, then your x-ray is very likely to show up a fracture. The cortical bone shows up well on x-ray. There's likely to be a cortical disruption in that kind of clinical scenario, and therefore a negative x-ray is much more helpful. Whereas if you have a person with terrible bones, they're osteoporotic, they've been on chronic steroids, they've got calcium insufficiency, any kind of complicated patient who then has a very low-velocity trauma you are not as likely to have disrupted cortex on x-ray, and therefore, if they're non-weight-bearing, you have to have a very high clinical suspicion that there is an occult fracture that you're going to need to go looking a bit deeper for. So, young person, high energy mechanism, you're likely to see the fracture on the x-ray. Old person, low energy mechanism, you might not see it, and that's really when you want to go further. The other important thing on history that patients may complain of is they may not have hip pain all at all. They may actually have knee pain. We think of that in kids all the time, that if you've got knee pain, maybe you've got a slip capital femoral epiphysis. But I'll tell you, in elderly folk, you can have a fractured hip that presents as knee pain. Uh, I'll tell you personally that I saw a 62-year-old guy who was seen in the emergency at one of our excellent eMERGE docs. Actually, of his knee were done. He had a slip on the ice, injured his you know, pain medial side of his knee, followed up with me in the minor fracture clinic. I couldn't figure out why he had so much knee pain. I even got him to straight leg raise. He said he hurt. I said, do you have any pain in your hip? He said, no. I sent him home. I said, follow up with an orthopedic surgeon for follow-up. And he had a fractured hip. He came back and had an operation for it. And I missed it completely. And just this past summer, there was another patient in our hospital. Seen in the emergency department by an excellent eMERGE doc. Slip at church. Injured knee. Came into eMERGE. X-rays of the knee showed that she had osteoarthritis. Followed up with orthopedics. Saw orthopedics seven days later. Diagnosed with a flare of osteoarthritis at the knee. Came back six days later to the hospital with a fractured hip. So knee pain, think knee hip. Knee pain, think hip, absolutely. And these are challenging patients. It's important to think, you know, why does it really matter? And it matters because even a two-day delay to an operation can double mortality in an elderly patient. And uh, if you have initially had a non-displaced fracture, which then displaces, then the surgery becomes more complicated and the post-op healing is a lot more complicated. So time is of the essence. Times of the essence, and the surgery is different. The patient that I had initially would have gotten just a pin in a plate and just hold it in place. But because it was knocked off by the time he came back, he actually got a hip replacement.
and that they're incredibly common, that they anticipate that 15% of people will have a hip fracture by the age of 80. So we're going to be seeing a lot more as the years go by. So, But the question then becomes, as you're asking, is what happens if the x-rays are negative? Say they have knee pain, say they have hip pain, and now the x-rays are negative, how do we work them up next? There are, you know, reports in literature, there are sort of suggestions in books. You take the elderly, make them non-weight-bearing, give them crutches, and have them closely followed up in a week. But if they didn't break their hip before, putting an elderly person on crutches is almost a positive predictive value, 100%, <laughs> that they will have a fractured hip afterwards. So that's a very poor combination, elderly and crutches. Uh, you have to be careful with that. So usually what happens is they need to be investigated somehow. And again, where you stand on an issue depends on where you sit. And if you sit in a hospital where you have access to all the different possible tests, then your menu is bigger. And if you sit in a hospital where you don't have access to a lot of it, then your menu is different. And it's certainly uh, in our hospital, the disposition of the patient depends on the actual appropriate diagnosis. And if you have someone that is a non-operative case, then they would go to our medical service or geriatrics. Whereas if there is clearly a fracture that's going to need a surgery, then the orthopedic team will take them on. So it may be worth your time to do a little bit more investigating through emergency to establish if there is or is not a fracture. And uh, if there is a, a clear diagnosis, then you have your disposition more clearly laid out. And in our hospital, the the easiest test for us to get would be a CAT scan. But we uh, we know that there's a lot of studies out there saying that CAT scans don't show occult hip fractures very well, but a lot of those were based on the old four-slice CT scanners that simply didn't image this area particularly well, that if the fracture was in the same plane as the beam, then it, it didn't pick it up, similar to X-ray. My understanding with the CAT scan, though, was that CAT scan is really good for bone, and then versus MRI, which actually isn't good for bone. So then why is it that the MRI in the studies has been shown to be better than CAT scan? Very confusing. Uh, I agree with your, your statement, which is what our orthopedic surgeons tell us. Uh, CT scan if you're worried about bone, MRI if you're worried about soft tissue. I think there's also some concern that MR tends to overcall things. You see things that aren't potentially clinically relevant, that it may overcall fractures, it may see little small breaks that really don't mean anything, that we've been treating them for years with negative x-rays as if they've had a soft tissue injury. Perhaps mm-hmm. they do have very minor occult fractures. But sometimes the less we know, the better. An MRI sometimes gives us more information than we need. The patient then walks around with a diagnosis of some occult fracture that they think they've got. But really, from a clinical point of view, from a management point of view, it doesn't really change our management. A lot of times, as as eMERGE docs, we follow what the consultants do if it makes sense to us. And if our consultants in our hospital prefer CT, we don't really fight and argue for an MR because really what this, the, the orthopedic surgeon wants at the end is just have a CAT scan and see what it shows. I think uh, that's an excellent point, and certainly you'd have to fight tooth and nail to get an MRI, and if the orthopod is happy with a CT scan, then excellent. Um, there is some argument to try to do limited MRI of the hip joint, which then doesn't pay as much attention to the soft tissues, is much shorter in duration, takes only 15 minutes to do, and uh, gives you a really good look at the bone marrow, which I think is the key in these occult fractures that you can see injury around the trabecular bone that shows up nicely on an MRI, I believe in a T1-weighted sequence, although I would leave that to the radiologist to decide exactly what they wanted to do. But that in this particular situation, MRI can be quite sensitive in picking out occult fractures. So the head-to-head studies of MRI with CT, they were the older studies, 
with four slice CT scanner showed that MRI was way better. We don't really have any studies for the newer generation 64 slice CTs. What are people saying about how good the new CTs are? Do you think they're as good as MR? I mean, no one really knows now, but... Well, yeah, I, I can't quote any literature to tell you, but I know what happens in our hospital, and our orthopedic surgeons are very happy with CT scans showing you bone. There's all kinds of radiology programs where you can do 3D reconstructs now. You can, If you just want to see the, the, the acetabulum, you can eliminate the, 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 the femoral head out of the picture, and now you can reconstruct and you can look at the whole acetabulum. These programs are brilliant what they do. Uh, you can do the same. You can get rid of the pelvis altogether, and you can just focus on the hip. And you can see the the femoral head, and you can see where things are. And you can just flip that image you know, any different way that you want. So I think the technology is better, and I think CT is, in our hospital anyways, it's good enough. Uh, if it's negative, we're happy that they don't have a fracture. We'll treat them. We're not having a fracture. And in terms of the, the evidence base, I guess we just we, we got to wait for that study to prove it. And ultimately, I think it's a little difficult to establish what is the gold standard. Um, an occult fracture, by definition, can't be seen even on arthroscopy. And if you're going to set your MRI as your gold standard and the MRI is overcalling things, then it makes it look like the CT is missing things. So it's a little bit difficult to know what actually is the correct answer. That's an excellent point. Uh, the other option that's in there in the mix that some people may have available to them is a bone scan. Limitations to the bone scan, you need to wait two or three days for it to, to go positive. And it's a nuclear medicine test, which often, you know, we joke around and say instead of nuclear medicine, it's unclear medicine. You just switch the N and the U and you end up getting, you know, it's a sensitive test. So if your bone scan, uh, if you have a fracture, your bone scan will be positive if you wait the prescribed 48 to 72 hours. If your bone scan is negative and you waited that long, you can say you don't have a fracture. But there are a lot of post-traumatic arthritis. You can have OA of the hip. All these things that can give you a false positive in your bone scan. Uh, and sometimes it doesn't localize as well where the actual fracture is. You may have an acetabular fracture, but it appears to be an occult subcapital fracture or somewhere else in the area. So it, it's, a, it's, it's not a great test. If it's what you've got available to you, a negative bone scan at three days, you can say they haven't got a fracture. It's a very sensitive test that way. So for, for docs who don't have immediate access to CT, who it would take them three, four days to get a CT, bone scan is... is yeah, a, you is need a to admit the patient, option. exactly. You need to admit the patient, if, depending on where they come from, but they're non-weight-bearing, they really have to be on bed rest. And they should be checked in three days and, and do a bone scan. There are some uh, slightly fancier bone scan techniques as well, where there's a modern three-phase array where it looks like at 24 hours you can actually get a, an accurate read on whether there is or isn't a fracture but again, it'll depend on the technology of your particular hospital. I think if you are in a facility that you have the choice of a, a 64 slice CT scanner or a, a bone scan, then certainly you'd choose the CT first to avoid the uh, the risk of thromboembolic events, pressure ulcers, pneumonias, and uh, delayed time to surgery that you'd get by waiting for uh, even the 24 hours for a bone scan. Well, I think bottom line for this is if you have an attempt at putting together an algorithm for what you think might be a, a hip fracture. If you have good bones and a high-velocity trauma, then likely your X-ray is going to be positive if there is a fracture. If you have a really high clinical suspicion but a negative X-ray, then a CAT scan is adequate. Whereas on the other hand, if you have bad bones, thin bones, and a low-velocity trauma with a negative X-ray, then ideally you're moving on to a uh, a CT if that's all you have, but then to an MRI if you still have any any clinical suspicion of an occult fracture. The one last imaging modality we haven't talked about yet is ultrasound. 
So is there any role for ultrasound in, in occult hip fractures? The ED2 group was saying that it's sometimes helpful in being able to demonstrate that there's an effusion and where there's smoke, there's fire, and you'd have a, a strong uh, support for getting your orthopod involved early, and that occasionally you might be able to see cortical disruption with the ultrasound probe. But if you could see a cortical disruption with the ultrasound probe, it should be evident on the x-ray. So I think the ultrasound would be helpful to see if there's an effusion at the joint. And if there is an effusion at the joint in someone who doesn't sound like a septic hip, then probably there is a break that needs further attention from ortho. But the studies, I don't think, are there yet. Yeah, I think there was one small study uh, out of Israel that showed a very good, close to 100% sensitivity for ultrasound for the hip, but probably not ready for prime time yet. Although you'd look pretty slick if you called up your orthopedic surgeon and said you've got a negative x-ray, but you've got you know, an effusion on your ultrasound that you highly suspect that there was a fracture and that, that turned out to be a fracture. And certainly if you were in a remote center where you didn't have access to CT or MR and you needed to transfer the patient into a, a tertiary care center, then having that extra bit of information would be helpful for the accepting physician. Let's highlight the key clinical pearls from this first case. First, occult fractures of the hip and pelvic ring are mutually exclusive. So if you see a hip fracture, they will not have a pelvic fracture. And if you see a pelvic fracture, they will likely not have a hip fracture. Secondly, what are the key physical exam maneuvers that you can use to try and diagnose a hip fracture when it's not quite obvious? One, it's a new inability to weight bear. Two is pain on axial loading. And three is pain on straight leg raise. These are three key features aside from the usual pain on internal and external rotation. The other thing that was very interesting from this case was the percussion test. It involves, again, just to review, listening with your stethoscope at the symphysis pubis and percussing each patella. And if there's no difference between the volume of percussion between the sides, then it's very unlikely to be a fracture. The other key historical feature is that in patients who present with knee pain, you need to think about hip. So occasionally you'll have a patient with isolated knee pain it will actually have a hip fracture. Remember that time is of the essence, that the earlier you diagnose a hip fracture, the sooner they'll get surgery, the sooner they'll get better, the less morbidity and mortality that they'll have. In terms of imaging, although MRI is better than four-slice CT at picking up orthopedic injuries of the hip, the 64-slice CT is probably just as good as MRI and the MRI may be overcalling some clinically irrelevant injuries. So when it comes to an algorithm for how to work up suspected occult hip fractures, for young patients with a high energy mechanism and a normal x-ray, you might want to go on to CT because CT is very good at looking at cortical bone. On the other hand, if you have an old patient with a low energy mechanism and the x-ray is normal, you might want to go on to doing an MRI or else if you have a 64 slice CT scanner with 3D recon, then doing a CT would most likely be adequate. Uh, lastly, if you don't have a CT or MRI, 
in access, then uh, a bone scan is another option, but you do have to wait 48 to 72 hours uh, for it to become positive, and it does have a low specificity. However, the sensitivity of bone scan is very good, uh, and if that's your primary concern to rule out uh, a hip fracture, then bone scan is pretty good at between 48 and 72 hours. Okay, on to case number two here. Uh, we've got an 18-year-old female who presents to your emergency department one day after injuring her left ankle while snowboarding. She was doing a jump and she landed funny. Since then, she says she cannot put weight on her ankle without excruciating pain and tells you that her ankle is really swollen. On physical exam, she fails the Ottawa ankle rules, being unable to weight bear four steps, but has no tenderness over the posterior and medial or lateral malleoli. She's very tender and swollen just infra-anterior to the distal tip of the fibula over the anterior talofibular ligament. You order three views of the ankle, which looks normal. So, Dr. Momin, what, what do you want to do next with, with this patient? Well, you always, in orthopedics, examine joints above and joint below. So you start off with this young lady making sure that her knee and the, the foot seem fine. And if you convince yourself that it does really seem to be in the area of an anterior sprain, you have to try to figure out if the mechanism of injury fits that type of diagnosis. So in a fairly aggressive snowboarder landing really hard, is it likely that she simply sprained her ankle or is it likely that there might be something bony going on that the x-rays here haven't picked up? Snowboarding is particularly interesting in this way in that they have their feet fixed into the board in dorsiflexion and uh, typically when a snowboarder lands in a funny way and falls, they often will cause their foot to go into eversion, which will then allow the lateral aspect of the talus to hit the uh, distal fibula, causing what's called a snowboarder's fracture, a fracture of the lateral process of the talus. And certainly that would be the first thing that would come to mind. But in the same general vicinity, the calcaneus is there and they can certainly injure the calcaneus. Uh, They can injure their tailor dome. You'd want to make sure that you fully examine the posterior aspect of the ankle to check out their Achilles tendon. Um, And with all injuries, you want to make sure that the neurovascular status is intact, that there's no damage there. Right. And as as Dr. Maven mentioned, when you're a snowboarder, your your foot's reasonably locked. Um, When you injure your ATF ligament, your foot needs to be in plantar flexion and inversion. That's a very difficult thing to do when you're locked into a snowboard. So it doesn't quite fit, uh, just as Dr. Maven mentioned, the what you find on the patient's foot has to fit with their story. And it's very difficult to get inversion and plantar flexion when your foot's locked into a snowboard. So even though they may be sore, where typical ankle sprains are sore at the insertion of their ATF ligament, it's difficult to do when you're locked into a snowboard. So it's got to raise a little red flag that there's some sort of a disconnect. This doesn't really sort of make a lot of sense. And then you just need to be aware of the fact that these uh, snowboarder-type fractures can occur. The, the auto ankle rules... Are, are wonderful to tell you who needs an x-ray, but they don't tell you how to examine an ankle. And they miss lots of parts of the ankle that are very important, um, that may not be very common injuries, but in fact are, are, can be significant injuries. The entire anterior aspect of the ankle joint is not examined by the auto ankle rules. The ankle rules just tell you, check the inside, check the medially, check laterally. If they're sore in the back, uh, you know, then go ahead and take an x-ray. And if they're not sore in the back, then you don't need to, you know, provided they could weight bear. But if you have a Taylor Dome fracture, if you have a syndesmosis injury, if you have a, you know, a, a tibial plafond fracture, you may not be able to weight bear. You take an x-ray, but we don't, if we don't examine it, we don't know that's the source of their pain. 
um, and we examine what the ankle rules tell us to examine, we tend not to sort of go further uh, and look at the other little specifics, as Dr. Maiman was mentioning, of having a nice sort of organized approach around the ankle. What I find is residents often uh, will examine the ankle strictly as the rules tell them to, decide if an x-ray is needed or not. If the x-ray comes back as negative, by definition, they must have a sprain. Um, and again, uh, we tend to sort of do incomplete exams uh, until such time as we decide they need an x-ray. When we see the x-ray, we don't often go back and complete the exam and actually feel exactly where all the pain is, get them to move, all those sorts of things that we really should do. So there are limitations to the auto ankle rules. The auto ankle rules are not a replacement for a good ankle exam. And I think that's an excellent point. As with all rules, they're guidelines, and guidelines are a tool that is accessible to you, but it's not the be-all and end-all. And if your clinical suspicion trumps that, then you have to go with your clinical suspicion. What other x-rays could you do that would try and elucidate whether there's something else going on there? Are there any other views that you could do? In this particular case, there is a a specific type of an x-ray, which is called a Borden's view, which is the mortise view of the ankle, but with the foot implant reflection that allows you then to see the lateral aspect of the talus a bit more clearly. One handy handy point on the lateral x-ray is what they call the V sign that... um, a normal talus has a symmetric V-shaped contour at the uh, plantar surface of the talus. And a normal talus, this V is symmetric. So if your V does not look symmetric or it looks uh, crooked, then likely you have a displaced fracture. If you do have a, a displaced fracture, then ultimately this is likely to need operative fixation at some point because you can end up with degenerative changes in the subtalar joint if it's not anatomically aligned. In terms of uh, if you have a snowboarder's fracture, if it's undisplaced, uh, then they're usually non-weight bearing. They fall up with ortho relatively early because they tend to be a little more complicated. They take a little while to heal. They may become something operative. Uh, they take anywhere from four to six weeks for for mobilization. Typically, uh, if it's something that's displaced, uh, as you both have mentioned, uh, it definitely sort of may need surgery. And therefore, it's a it's a discussion with the orthopedics service. And then, lastly, if you do have uh, a displaced fracture, there's quite often considerable soft tissue damage associated with that that may need operative repair, such as a capsular tear that then would benefit from um, surgical fixation. So a displaced fracture isn't just the bone involved. There's a considerable amount of soft tissue that'll also need repair. As snowboarding becomes more and more popular, it looks like we're going to be seeing more and more of these fractures. Um, I think the key here is that when the mechanism of injury does not fit an ankle sprain, even if they have swelling over the usual ATF ligament like they would in an ankle sprain, uh, you need to think about some ankle sprain mimics. And here is a list you can take away of your ankle sprain mimics. One is this snowboarder's fracture or a lateral process of the talus. Another is a Taylor dome fracture. The third one would be posterior talus process fracture, which is sort of a reverse snowboards fracture. Fourthly, an Achilles tendon rupture. And lastly, anterior process of the calcaneus fracture. Uh, These things are probably worth just looking up and reviewing. And uh, this list of five uh, fractures are worth uh, thinking about when you have an ankle sprain. You think it's probably an ankle sprain, but uh, you examine them carefully and it looks like there might be something more. These are the ones you want to be looking for. Uh, when in doubt, just backslab them and have them not non-weight bearing. The other thing to remember here is uh, for the snowboarder's fracture is that you can do a Borden's view 
and to look for the V sign on the lateral x-ray of the talus. Uh, if there's any asymmetry there, you know there's a displaced uh, snowboarder's fracture. And these displaced fractures need early ortho consult. The non-displaced ones uh, can wait a few days, uh, not in weight-bearing as well. Okay, moving on to another case here. We've got a 40-year-old man who was driving a car. He lost control and drove into a pole at about 80 kilometers an hour. He was belted. Uh, there was no airbag. His only complaint is severe right knee pain. Uh, he was bordered and collared. And on exam, his primary survey was unremarkable. On secondary survey, uh, there were no signs of head injury. There was slight C-spine tenderness and no T or L-spine tenderness. His chest and abdo exam were normal. Pelvis was stable. His extremity exam revealed a swollen, tender right knee with an obvious effusion and very limited range. On the physical exam that uh, we want to know about this guy? You're fairly satisfied that this gentleman has no significant thoracic or abdominal trauma. It sounds like uh, with the slight C-spine tenderness, you'd want to make sure that there's any uh, neurologic compromise anywhere, any motor compromise. And then if all of that was satisfied, then you'd move your uh, focus down to his affected knee and uh, examine that thoroughly, examining the joint above and the joint below and making sure that you check the neurovascular status distal to the injury. What would make you more or less worried about the C-spine versus the knee in terms of the neurovascular status? So it really depends. You know, it's always trying to localize the lesion. It's the fun of neuro. So you find a lesion, you're trying to figure out where it's coming from. Two legs equals one back. Two arms equals one neck. It's unusual for a neck injury to present just with deficits from the knee below. If you see something that's localized at the area of the knee and there are deficits below it, it's less, much less likely it's going to be either from the back or from the neck. Well, you're certainly um, going to need to document the uh, pedal pulses and you're going to be making sure that you get plain films of the bones of the knee to make sure that the laxity that you're seeing isn't that there's a complete fracture there. Um, if the bones look normal, then you're going to be very concerned about both of the uh, cruciate ligaments being completely disrupted. If you have the tibia sagging off the fibula, then you're worried about the fact that this may have been a knee dislocation that's spontaneously reduced, and you need to follow that up very carefully. Okay, so an x-ray was done, and uh, all it showed was an undisplaced proximal fibula fracture. Uh, There's more going on. That shouldn't give you such a big swollen knee. Uh, an important important thing to do is to try to give them the straight leg raise. Uh, you could have a fractured patella. The x-ray would rule that out, of course. You can have occult things in the knee that you may not show up that are operative. You can have a ruptured patella tendon. You can have a ruptured quads tendon. They can give you a swollen knee. Uh, can give you some discomfort, though usually not so much pain, but they'd have an inability to straight leg raise. As part of the look-feel-move, when you actually move them, it's important to try to see if they've got laxity in multiple ligaments. Acutely, assessing someone's ACL in the emergency department is a very difficult thing to do. They have a lot of pain, a lot of spasm. It's hard to know whether you know, they've actually got a loose ACL because everything around it is so tight. And you're trying to isolate a ligament that's deep inside. However, if you've had someone with a knee dislocation, which needs a significant trauma, as this person's had, you can have, if you have three out of four ligament laxity, so ACL, you know, PCL, MCL, it could be ACL, PCL, LCL, if you find that in an acute knee, that's very unusual. And by definition, if you have three out of four ligament laxity, yes, that means the patient had a dislocated knee. And the problem is, exactly as Dr. Maiman mentioned, 50% of the time it's going to be reduced. It's so unstable, 
the injury is, that it spontaneously reduces. So it goes out and it slips back in, and all you see is a sore, swollen knee. Sometimes it's not even all that swollen. If you rupture the medial side of the, uh, of the knee on an acute injury, it actually doesn't contain the effusion as well. And the effusion can leak out, and you don't get as big a swollen knee as you would expect to get. So sometimes that can kind of give you a little false sense, oh, it's not that swollen. But you really need to examine it. Just doing an x-ray is not enough. Again, it goes back to the point that sometimes we assess patients, see we're at the point of, okay, we need an x-ray. We do the x-ray, but then we don't go back and complete the exam until at any point because we just sort of think, okay, the x-ray is negative. We don't see anything broken. It's a soft tissue injury. There are things that we need to keep in mind that we have to rule out uh, significant, serious problems, especially given this mechanism. If he did have an occult dislocation of his knee, which he very well might have, it changes the management completely. He doesn't go home with an immobilizer. He doesn't get you know, followed up with ortho in a week, that sort of thing. If he had an ACL tear, he does. But if it's a dislocation, he needs to be watched. His vessels need to be watched. He's at risk for compromise. So with a motor vehicle accident uh, of this nature, what are sort of the top three knee injuries that you'd want to think about? I mean, this is sort of a classic you know, knee on dashboard is the usual one. So what are the, you had mentioned patella. So you, you can certainly fracture your patella. You can sort of, you can drive your hip posteriorly, you get a posterior hip dislocation. But if you have an acute knee and a big swollen knee, you can have a tibial plateau fracture. You can, you can have a knee dislocation is another one. So there are multiple things that can happen. You can have a distal femur fracture, although that's less likely. It really sort of, it's hard to do it with the knee flexed. It's unusual. If you do that, if the knee is flexed, what you often do, as I said, actually load the femur and you'll actually blow out the back of your acetabulum. So, so there are a number of things. But again, it goes back to history. It's very important. It's a high mechanism of injury. He's got lots of swelling around his knee. He's sore. You've got to be careful that there isn't something more going on. And I think with the dashboard injury, you can, in a lower velocity accident, have an isolated posterior cruciate tear. Um, and I think it mandates the emergency doctor to control the patient's pain adequately to get an appropriate physical exam where you may need to give them uh, adequate analgesia, potentially even an intraarticular uh, injection of a local anesthetic to be able to examine properly, is this a completely unstable knee uh, or is this seemingly a simple PCL tear? This patient was put in a full leg back slab and they were sent out with ortho follow-up. Do you think this was appropriate management of the, of the patient? If you have a concern of a possible um, knee dislocation, they need to have repeat neurovascular uh, assessments to make sure that they're not changing their pulses and that there's no uh, progression of the accident. I'm not sure that there's any clear guidelines as to how long they should be observed. Um, but if you have someone who's got a, a very concerning mechanism of injury, then you'd want most likely to get the orthopedic uh, specialist or the vascular surgeon involved in the emergency room before letting the patient go and uh, at least get a second opinion. In years past, it used to be almost like a reflex. If you thought someone had a dislocation, everybody gets their arteries looked at, but I think there's a more selective approach to it now. You can wait, you can watch, the, but I agree, there isn't really sort of a timeline. This is a significant knee injury this person had. This is one of those times, even though they're neurovascularly intact distally, an acute knee dislocation really should get emergent orthopedic referral. Let them manage. And certainly, if the, the patient were to have any paresthesias associated with the perineal nerve, the perineal nerve is more loosely tethered than the artery is. And if you have any kind of nerve injury, then you have a much higher risk of having had a concomitant arterial injury 
And at that point, you definitely want to go on to some kind of arterial imaging to make sure that there wasn't an arterial injury there. This patient was sent home and returned to the emergency department the next day with an ischemic leg. It turned out that he had an intimal tear in the palpiteal artery that was found on CT angiogram, and that had thrombosed. Dr. Seal, you had mentioned that we need to have a selective approach to who will get arterial imaging. After one observes the patient in the emergency department with serial Dopplers for a few hours, when can we be satisfied that they are free of arterial injury and they can go home? One of the things that you'd also be looking at is just whether the amount of pain seemed to fit with the mechanism of injury. And certainly if you have pain out of proportion to the injury, then at that point you're thinking of ischemia, whether it's coming from a compartment syndrome presentation or whether it's coming from some kind of an arterial injury. Um, With both compartment syndrome and a popliteal artery injury, you may get extreme pain, extreme tenderness, pallor to the limb, and uh, swelling. They may also have paresthesia, but the absence of pulses is a very late finding in compartment syndrome. And if that were to develop after a blunt trauma, then the the high probability is that you have an acute arterial injury that's going to need acute intervention. So um, if you did have a patient that had exquisite pain, then that would not be someone that you'd likely let go from eMERGE directly. Okay. It's another good point that the Patients with knee dismal patients aren't in that much pain. There's no bony fragments that are broken. Things tend to be in reasonably good position. It's a ligament injury. It's such an unstable injury. It slips back in. Once it sits anatomic, they're usually not in that much pain. There's also even so much muscle spasm in a sense because everything is loose. It just sort of moves all over. Mm-hmm. They're just sitting in, in, in neutral position lying in the hospital bed. They're usually not that uncomfortable. There's some pain for sure. Right. But it's not the patient that has a fractured tibia. It's not the same kind of pain that the guy's got a mid-shaft fracture of his femur. Mm. They can be occult, and that's why they're sometimes missed. Makes it's because you get distracted by something else, and you don't actually do the assessment or don't examine them. you got to actually pick up the knee and just check what's their ACL feel like, what's their PCL. It's very unusual to get a positive ACL-PCL combination acutely in the emergency department because they're so tight. Okay. So when you see it and you find it, you've got to think that maybe this patient had you know, they have three or four ligaments that are out you got to think that maybe they have no cult dislocation of the knee. So with this knee to the dashboard, you're thinking a possible posterior dislocation. What are the other sort of common mechanisms of injury that can cause an occult knee dislocation, not necessarily a posterior? The more concerning one is the anterior knee dislocation, and that's a hyperextension of the knee. So if somebody comes straight on, sometimes they're called autopeds. So if you're a pedestrian, you're standing in a car, back sort of right into you as you're facing it, and the the bumper something's going to hit your tibial plateau and you get a bumper fracture. Sometimes you can actually get quite significant hyperextension of the knee, and that's how you'll get a, uh, an anterior dislocation of the knee. So the tibia is anterior relative to the femur. That's also mm-hmm. a relatively common uh, sports injury where you have a contact sport such as uh, football or rugby where someone will get tackled and cause their knee to hyperextend. Okay, and are there are there different neurovascular uh, complications you worry about with anterior versus posterior? Well, the anterior is the popliteal artery. The anterior is a common perineal nerve. Um, there's a running back for the New England Patriots, Robert Edwards, who dislocated his knee playing sand, like beach football, at a Pro Bowl a number of years ago after his rookie season. It took him four or five years to get back, and they were worried whether he was going to get back. He had a perineal nerve injury. It's, it's a devastating knee injury. 
which may be occult when you see it in the emergency department. It may not show up on x-ray, but it's something you got to keep in mind if you're worried about the mechanism, because if it gets missed, patients may have uh, lifelong problems with their knee. In knee dislocations, the popliteal artery is injured in 30% of these cases, and if you delay repair of a popliteal artery and have ischemia lasting uh, eight hours or more, then you have a 15% chance of uh, amputation. Your viability goes down significantly with any delay in repair. Wow. Do you guys ever use the ankle brachial index to help you out when you're, when you're worried about neurovascular status? or? So, so people talk about it. So you take a blood pressure at the, at the arm, at the brachial artery, and you take an ankle blood pressure, and it should be at least 90% of them. If it's less than 90%, it's a concern. I can't tell you from clinical experience that I've seen more than two of these. So N equals two. It's not really a big case series to sort of tell you whether we do it or not. Certainly someone talks about it. But again, it's one of those things that I probably wouldn't rely on by and of itself. It's another little piece of the puzzle. You put a little bit of weight to it, but then you sort of also look at the rest of it. And I think that if you had a a patient that were being admitted for observation, then that's a helpful point of information that the nurses can provide. They could serially monitor that. Similar to doing neurovitals, you get your ankle brachial index hourly for a certain period of time. And if there's any change, then you're worried that there's some progression of a, an ischemic event. Knee dislocations are scary. Half of the knee dislocations reduce before they even present to the emergency room. And many of them don't have that much pain. So these are really easy to miss. You should be thinking of knee dislocation in an autoped injury, any contact sport injury, as well as the knee to dashboard motor vehicle accident injury. One third of these patients will have neurovascular injury, even if they are spontaneously reduced, and they may not declare themselves until a day or two after the injury. On exam, if you feel three or four ligaments have laxity in an acute knee injury, that's a dislocation until proven otherwise. If you get one of these, you should be consulting ortho early on and consider a vascular consult if there's any suspicion of vascular injury at all. You should be doing serial Dopplers uh, on the leg pulses and or ABI to monitor the vascular status. You should be getting a CT angiogram if you do have any suspicion of neurovascular damage. Remember, if there's any neuro possible neuro damage, the likelihood that is very high that there'll be vascular damage as well. Okay, on to the next case. We've got a 10-year-old boy who was playing soccer at recess. He gets tripped and has a right foosh, a fallen outstretched hand. His pain is in his wrist. On exam, there's no wrist swelling with full active range of motion and no thumb swelling with tenderness. Uh, The elbow has full range of motion and no tenderness. Well, with this child, you're immediately drawn to the fact that he's got snuff box tenderness, which is synonymous for most people with a scaphoid injury. And classically, I'll push in the anatomic snuff box at the dorsal radial aspect of the wrist. You'll also tend to do axial compression of the thumb to see if it elicits pain in that snuff box area. And you'll push on the volar aspect of the uh, scaphoid to see if that's tender. And if it does seem tender, then you're certainly going on to x-ray that, that area. It seems to me like there's a lot of different physical exam maneuvers 
to see whether someone has a scaphoid fracture. We all know about snuffbox tenderness. What does the literature say about which of these physical exam maneuvers are, are useful at all? There are numerous different potential physical exam maneuvers that you can do in, in addition to what Dr. Maimon's mentioned. And different reports, they all try to sort of you know, come up with a better mousetrap, different ways of sort of doing it. The problem is, is that very few of these can tell you reliably that you don't have a scaphoid fracture. So there may be ones that may be a little more sensitive, a little less sensitive. What you want is a test that says you don't have a scaphoid fracture. That gives you 100% sensitivity. So, if, so you don't get any false, uh, any false negatives. And that's difficult to do. So you can, you can try to filter out all of these tests. Uh, to tell you, I, I follow a lot of patients who have clinical scaphoid fractures, so they follow the emergency room, they follow up in the minor fracture clinic, uh, we immobilize them, and when we see them in the minor fracture clinic, I basically have sat down, talked to all the orthopedic surgeons, I filtered what they do, and I just try to practice the way they would practice and try to determine whether they have a scaphoid fracture or not. And what we, often, what we do is we just look for, exactly as was mentioned, we look for snuffbox tenderness, but one of the clues is that if you're going to check for snuffbox tenderness, you need to only deviate the wrist. Uh, the carpals actually rotate a fair bit, and when you only deviate the wrist, you reveal the scaphoid more. If you, if you do snuffbox tenderness with the wrist in radial deviation, uh, then you're actually hiding. You're, most of the time, you're actually you're pushing on the trapezium. And when you get the snuffbox, when you get out to ulnar deviation, you actually reveal more of the proximal third, the waist of the scaphoid, and those are the injuries that we're more concerned about. When you check, it's not the most comfortable spot on your body to, to press on, so always compare to the opposite side. And if they're equal, you can stop. So you're not just looking if it's uncomfortable, but if it's different from the other side. Because if you press hard enough in your own, you'll kind of, ah, it's not really the most comfortable spot. The other thing is palmar scaphoid tenderness, as was mentioned. And that's one of the ways that you can actually tell if, you've, if you're actually in the right spot. A lot of residents, when I ask them, well, you know, show me where the palmar scaphoid is, they're actually pointing to the thinner eminence, and they're not in the right spot. From a flexion extension point, you just put it in neutral, and then only deviate the wrist. When you bring your wrist over radially, you'll actually feel the scaphoid hit your th finger. And that's where you should be feeling for palmar scaphoid tenderness. And if you've got three out of the three out of the three that are positive, you've got probably a ninety percent chance, and someone's at a fall nature chance of having a scaphoid fracture. So the three are axial thumb load, pain, palmar tenderness, and snuffbox tenderness. Exactly. Okay. Two out of the three, about seventy percent. You can you may not have snuffbox tenderness, but you may have the others. So you should really sort of do all three and check. Have a good mechanism if you've got pain. Even if the x-ray is negative and you can order extra scaphoid views if you're worried. Usually it's about 15%, I understand, of scaphoid fractures that are occult on risk, wrist x-rays. Do the, do the scaphoid x-rays decrease that number or is that also 15% about that you're... No, it does add a little bit to the sensitivity, so it makes it a little more likely. I'm not sure it's going to change management though. So sometimes what happens is if the nurses do the x-rays, they send them down for a wrist x-ray, they come back and it's negative but you find that they have snuffbox tenderness, is there any value in sending them down for scaphoid films? Send them a second time. Mm -hmm. There may not be much benefit because what are you going to do differently? Most of the time we immobilize them and have them followed up anyways. Mm -hmm. So if it's not going to change your management, you may not need to. And how about, you know, this is a 10-year-old kid, this, this case. Do you, do you see a lot of scaphoid fractures in kids? So under 15, over 50, it's quite uncommon. So it's much more common to fracture your distal radius in those age groups. Between 15 and 50, it's more common and seen more in the younger uh, section of that, of that group, sort of 15 to 30, 15 to 40. Uh, but it's not that it doesn't happen. I've seen a kid, a 14-year-old with bilateral scaphoid fractures. I saw a 9-year-old a few months ago who had a fracture of a scaphoid that was proven only 
on x-ray as it healed, so it wasn't seen initially, it was radiographically occult, but on, on follow-up, he, uh, he had a healing fracture of his tuberosity. In kids, if you're going to have a scaphoid fracture, it's more likely to be the tuberosity, the distal end of the scaphoid, which is much less worrisome. They're much less likely to get waist fractures or proximal third fracture. My understanding is that we, we actually way over-diagnose pediatric scaphoid fractures. There was a study uh, in Calgary in 2008 with more than 1,000 patients, which showed that, that the positive predictive value of snuffbox tenderness is very poor and that we are actually over-treating these kids. Any tricks that you have up your sleeve in terms of examining kids could help us diagnosing them a bit more accurately? Well, pragmatically for me, I think that if someone's in a lot of pain, then you splint them for comfort. And whether or not they have a fracture uh, is a little bit of a moot point. Obviously, you don't want something to displace, and therefore you want it properly protected. But in a child that needs a splint for comfort, I personally don't think that's doing them a disservice. I think that it's a different story if you have someone who's then taken out of the workforce for 10 days by a thumb spike, a cast, who might not actually need it. And in that kind of situation, it might be an option to go on to further imaging much more quickly to prove that they don't actually have a fracture and therefore don't need the cast. But in a pediatric population, I personally don't uh, see too much harm in immobilizing a, a sore bone and seeing how it heals in the next week to 10 days. Okay, so for these patients where the x-ray is negative and you still suspect a scaphoid fracture based on your physical exam, do you ever go straight to CT, uh, try and push for a CT in the emergency room to rule it out so that you're not immobilizing the patient for no reason? There is an Australian study that showed that for people in the workforce who had suspected scaphoid injuries that they got an MRI within 48 hours, that it significantly reduced their uh, time of immobilization and returned them to work much, much quicker and with incredibly positive patient outcomes and patient satisfaction. But in our uh, eMERGE department, we never would get any kind of imaging other than plain x-rays. And I agree. It certainly wouldn't happen in our hospital that anybody would be able to push for a expected scaphoid fracture to get a CT immediately. It's, a, it's still a reasonably scarce resource. We have 24-hour CT heads in our hospital, but to push somebody to have to get them, that isn't going to change what we're immediately going to do. Even if it's negative, they still have a scaphoid injury. They still need, may need to be mobilized. They still may need to be followed up. And the ligaments aren't well assessed by, the, by a CT scan. Uh, there is radiation associated with it. And I follow up a number of these, and often when they come back, they're fine. At 10 days, they're non-tender. They may not even get a second set of x-rays if they're perfectly fine and well. And they need not only no CT scan and no radiation from that, they don't even need a second set of films because they've completely healed. I don't think we're quite ready to do immediate CTs on everybody yet. And I think given the scarcity of the resource, I think it'll be a little while before we get there. And for the clinical scaphoid fractures, in terms of what do we need to do for it? Do we need to... So the patient with snuffbox tenderness, they may have some palmar scaphoid tenderness, actually loading of the first metacarpal sore and their x-rays are negative, but you're still worried they might have a scaphoid fracture. There's also great debate as to whether we truly need to immobilize them or not. Uh, the concern is, is whether they develop complications of avascular necrosis or non-union. Uh, one theory is, is if you can't even see the fracture on the initial x-ray, what's the likelihood you disrupted the blood supply, disrupted the periosteum, and therefore are going to be more likely to have a complication. 
It's not really well studied. What happens, what's the, the natural history of these clinically occult scaphoid fractures? Whenever orthopedic surgeon says, just give them a tensor and tell them not to follow up, not to fall again, but just make sure they're all followed up. By immobilizing them, it makes it uh, a little more likely that they're going to come back and they're going to be seen and they're going to get that reassessment. So that's one of the advantages of doing it. They also are, are in discomfort. If it's a soft tissue injury, if it's uh, if it turns out to be an occult fracture, there's no... It's it's a beneficial thing to give them some rest, as Dr. Maimon was saying. Uh, and there's also there's orthopedic literature that says as long as you immobilize the scaphoid fracture in the first four weeks of its injury, and you immobilize it for the length of time that you need to immobilize it for, whether it be eight weeks, 12 weeks, even sometimes up to 16 weeks, as long as you do immobilize them, but they're immobilized somewhere in the first four weeks that their outcome is, their outcomes are not different for these undisplaced fractures. Okay, so in terms of immobilizing suspected scaphoid fractures, uh, there was a landmark study done by Gelman that showed that long arm casts or long arm splints rather were superior to short arm splints for scaphoid fractures in terms of their outcome. Does this mean we should be putting patients in a long arm splint for suspected scaphoid fractures? You were mentioning before that some surgeons just use tensor bandages. And now we've got the range here from a long arm cast to just a tensor. So where, where are we left? What should be the bottom line here in terms of immobilization for scaphoid fractures? Again, I think a lot depends on where you work. So if your surgeons put everybody in a long-arm scaphoid cast and that's what they really want, you can have a debate with them and try to change their mind. But that may be a product of where they trained and that's how they like to do it. And you may be forced to do it if you don't think it makes a lot of sense. Our orthopods in our hospital, none of them put them in long-arm scaphoids. Uh, some places have a... A preference where if it's a proximal fracture, either the waist or the proximal third, they put those in long arms, and the ones that are the distal tuberosity uh, or distal half of the fra- of the scaphoid, they put them in short arms. But again, it's where you it's where you work. You need to talk to your consultants and get an idea. You don't have to call them on every single suspected scaphoid case, but if you get an idea of sort of the general trend that the orthopedic surgeons like, then you'll just follow along with how they're going to manage them. I think we have to separate out the ones that have a definite scaphoid fracture versus suspected. So definite scaphoid fractures unquestionably need to be mobilized, unquestionably are put into thumb spike splints. Uh, there is a debate whether you go long arm or short arm. We go short arm in our hospital. In patients that have suspected scaphoid fractures, so negative x-rays, and they have uh, su- suspicion for having a scaphoid fracture, with those patients, it's debatable what, if anything needs to be done for them. We actually put them in removable Velcro splints. We tell the patients to wear them at all times except for while bathing, that they should not do any activity where they might fall and re-injure it, and we get them followed up between 10 to 14 days. Uh, it gives them a little more time for that x-ray to turn positive and save a bone scan or save the next level investigation that needs to be done. Do you ever have them follow up earlier for a bone scan, maybe in three days when a bone scan so might be positive? Some people talk about that as an option. We don't do it in our hospital. Um, again, it's, it's not that it's that scarce uh, a test to organize, but a number of these patients at a week or 10 days are fine. A bone scan is the equivalent of anywhere between 50 to 100 chest x-rays. Um, and if they were going to be fine in another five or seven or 10 days and they're pain-free and they don't even need another x-ray, uh, it, again, it may be an exposure to radiation that's unnecessary. A bone scans limited in terms of, I follow cases myself of patients that had negative bone scans and turned out to have scaphalunate tears. So again, it tells you that there's not a fracture, but they may have a significant ligamentous injury that doesn't show up on a bone scan. If you see a, a wrist x-ray, you see a fair bit of arthritic changes. Again, you can have a, a false positive bone scan, 
It's a sensitive test, but it's not a specific test. And in children, as Dr. Maiman mentioned earlier, it's a significant amount of radiation for a young child. So doing a bone scan for a suspected scaphoid fracture, they're better off just to be immobilized and follow them radiographically. When you do follow them up in, in a week or 10 days and their repeat x-ray is, is negative, do you ever move on at that point to MR to rule out other injuries? My understanding is with scaphoid, that a lot of these studies done with scaphoid fractures and MR, they're seeing a lot of other injuries besides scaphoid fractures when they, when they go to MR. Right. So it's, it's an excellent point. Again, MR shows us a lot of things that we never saw before. We're immobilizing them anyways for the most part because they're sore. We treat them symptomatically. If they do come back, at, and we try not to get them, we try not to get them back at seven days. We try to get them back between ten and fourteen. Give a little more time to heal. A scaphoid fracture shouldn't heal within seven to ten days. So if they're pain free, that makes us feel more comfortable. Also, if you go ten to fourteen days, you're more likely to see a healing fracture than you would if they come back earlier. So we try to push them out a little longer. It's a little bit of. A, a balance that you've got to achieve because now you're immobilizing people longer than maybe they need to be immobilized for, uh, but you may get a better yield with an x-ray and then not have to go on to another investigation like a bone scan or a CT or an MR. Depends on where you find their, their discomfort. If you you know, often localize your pain to the scaphoid ligament and you're more worried about the ligament side of it, you can do certain sort of provocative tests that if you're worried about a scaphoid ligament tear, you can sort of suggest you can order something called a clenched fist view which is a special view you do just by actively clenching the fist. And what it can do is it can sometimes splay. You sort of splay your intercarpals. You pull your capitate down, and you can actually reveal a dynamic sort of Terry Thomas sign, a generic scaphoid dissociation, and then they show up. So we'll often do a clenched fist view when they come back just to make sure they haven't got some occult scaphoid injury. Okay. Uh, just, just review for us what the Terry Thomas sign is. So the Terry Thomas sign is a space that sits uh, on your AP view of your wrist x-ray, between the scaphoid and the lunate. Normally it's up to three millimeters is acceptable, but the, the distance between all the carpal bones should be roughly equal. And uh, with Terry Thomas sign, there's a widening of that space. Terry Thomas was a British actor who had a little diastema gap between his two front teeth. And that gap between his two front teeth is what these what the scaphoid and the lunate appear like on the, uh, on the x-ray. If you're more than five millimeters wide, then definitely it's uh, an abnormal base and that's a sign of a scaphoid lunate tear or scaphoid dissociation, but you can have a, a partial tear and you can have a dynamic widening. And one of the ways to reveal it, it's essentially like a stress view, is it's a clenched fist view. And sometimes you have to go back, you have to talk to the x-ray techs, you have to tell them how to do it, because many of them may not know how to do it. It's not just the patient, it's not just closing their hand and taking the x-ray, they actively have to be clenching at the time. And then you may sort of see a reveal, or it goes from, you know, two millimeters to four millimeters, and now you know, okay, well, there's an injury to the scaphoid ligament. Okay. Sometimes helps, and it may sort of. Then you may go on to MR, and that may help guide you in terms of what your next investigation is. And typically, if there is a scaphoid dissociation, it's an operative repair. It, it depends on the surgeon, depends on the circumstances. If it's a complete tear, they certainly might. Uh, if it's missed, and if it goes on, you can develop, as I'm sure you're alluding to, a slack wrist, which is a scaphoid advanced collapse. It's a, a lot of degeneration that, that occurs prematurely in the wrist, uh, and you'll have a, a relatively poor outcome. It's a significant injury. Initial x-rays are often negative, and it's another one of those occult injuries that we have to be a little careful about and watch. Um, and, and you follow them along to sort of see how they do. But they often are not even in the hands of, of general orthopedic surgeons. They often go to upper extremity specialists because they are such a, uh, such a difficult diagnosis to make. Okay, so with these suspected uh, occult scaphoid fractures, 
how do you immobilize them exactly? What position do you immobilize them in? Well, the studies seem to show that the actual alignment of the wrist isn't uh, prognostic in terms of the healing. It's more a question of making sure that it's immobilized in some form of a thumb spica. And then so whether it's pronated or supinated or or flexor extended doesn't really matter too much. Right. So what we tend to do is we tend to put them in a position of function. So what we use is some some places put full circular casts on because it doesn't really swell all that much and that's fine. Uh, except for it takes longer to put it on when they come back to the fracture clinic. Someone has to saw it off, uh, and they're going to have to be reassessed anyways. It's not a long term cast of any sort. So what we just do is we put a little radial gutter on which extends down to the IP joint. So the IP joint should be free of the thumb. And then you just need plaster on both sides of the, the presumed fracture. So a little four inch strip, a little 10 centimeter strip is all that you need that goes down to the proximal third of your wrist. And when you're going to mold it, you put them into a few, the wrist is in a few degrees of extension. And what you do is you really just sort of arm wrestle with the patient. And if you arm wrestle with the patient, it puts their wrist in the right spot. You have them oppose their index finger to their thumb. And then you pull your hand away and their hand sitting in the right position. It's a nicely molded, simple little splint that you can put on in five minutes, and that more than immobilizes the scaphoid. The uh, holding a pop can position, that if you have your wrist in the same position that you'd hold a soft drink, often with the thumb in the same alignment as the radius, then that puts you in a position of safety and a position of function, and you're, you're perfectly fine. The pop can, I like that. And in terms of how long these patients need to be immobilized for? We, again, 7 to 10 days, sometimes it's a little shy. We try to get them to 10 to 14 days and reassess them. Um, again, it gives them a few more days for their soft tissue injury to heal, and it gives them a few more days for the occult fracture to show up on the x-ray. But it's a balance. You know, if it's, if it's a professional hockey player that needs to get back, I'm sure he'll get a CT, MR before he hits the ice. Right, like before he even falls, he'll have it all done to sort of see. So it, it is a fine balance. It's not always fair, um, and we always just sort of have to weigh everything: the the issue of immobilization, the time off work, the scarcity of the resource. It's a it's a fine line we have to walk. As you've just heard, there are widely differing practices when it comes to treating scaphoid fractures. Some of the key points to review here are that fifteen percent of scaphoid fractures will not show on the initial X ray. Once you've got a really good physical examination that includes axial thumb load tenderness and palmar or volar scaphoid tenderness, you should immobilize the wrist in a thumb spica splint. If their pain localizes more to the lunate, then consider a clenched fist view to pick up a scaphoid lunate slip. Remember that scaphoid fractures should be followed up in 10 to 14 days and that sometimes these are immobilized for up to 16 weeks so that when you're discharging the patient and they ask you what the expected time in a cast will be, uh, you should be telling them up to 16 weeks. For patients that need to get back to sport or work sooner than 10 to 14 day follow-up, then a CT or an MR is a reasonable choice to do soon after the injury, that'll allow for a quicker pickup and allow you to not immobilize the patients that don't have a fracture. Recent studies have suggested that 64 slice CT doesn't miss any scaphoid fractures compared to MR, but that MR may pick up other injuries that CT might miss. Okay, moving on to our next case, we've got a 56-year-old man from home found by his wife 
confused and sweaty in his bedroom on the floor. She called 911, and the EMS crew found the patient with a GCS of 12, heart rate of 120, blood pressure of 110 on 70, respiratory rate of 24, O2 sat of 100%, and a temp of 36. The glucometer showed a glucose of 1, which is very low for all the American listeners out there. Glucagon was given. Uh, on arrival in the ED, the vital signs were unchanged. The GCS was 14, and the glucometer showed a glucose of 3.5, which is a little bit low, the abnormal being below 4. Uh, an AMPA D50W was given, and the glucose normalized, as well as the GCS. On further history, the patient does not remember what happened, uh, but is now complaining of bilateral shoulder pain. His review of systems is otherwise unremarkable. He has a history of diabetes and is on aspirin, insulin, Altase, and Lipitor. His cardiac and neurologic exam are grossly normal. Uh, there are no signs of head injury or basal skull fracture. On examination of his shoulders, he's holding them in internal rotation, and when you try to externally rotate them, you come up against a great deal of resistance. His ECG is normal, and the standard cardiac workup was ordered. So the first thing to do is think about is make sure this isn't a neck injury that we're dealing with. He does localize the pain in his shoulders, which makes it less likely to be a neck issue. But in the grand scheme of things, as we start to think about things, when you hear about somebody has you know, symptoms in both hands or both, both extremities, uh, just sort of think, could there be a more central, like single source of the pain as opposed to two separate shoulder injuries that may have occurred. From a bigger picture as to what may have happened, he lost consciousness. Is it just because his sugar was low? Did something else occur? Did he fall and injure himself somewhere else? Uh, could he have possibly seized? Is there any sign of a, of a seizure on his physical exam? Uh, anything else that sort of makes us concerned? So uh, in terms of from, a, from a standing back at the end of the bed and thinking of what's going on, uh, still want to make sure that it's not just hypoglycemia, that maybe he had a seizure or something else with it. And I'm a little concerned about his neck, but it looks like it's probably coming from both of his shoulders where his pain is. And you mentioned sending off the cardiac workup, and certainly with uh, bilateral shoulder pain, you want to make sure it's not an aortic dissection or an MI. With both shoulders being injured, I don't think I've ever personally seen a patient in the emergency room with both shoulders injured at the same time, unless it's a massive trauma. How can we explain that we have both shoulders injured in a patient that, as far as we know, didn't have any massive trauma? Bilateral shoulder dislocations is actually extremely rare that almost always uh, it's a unilateral dislocation if uh, it is in fact a dislocation. And in this situation, we need to probably move on to examine the patient to try to figure out if there's any uh, clues to help us get a diagnosis. When the patient's examined, they're complaining of, of excruciating pain in both shoulders. And when you try and move their shoulders, there's very limited range of motion. And try and when you try and externally rotate, you're coming up against a lot of resistance. That's a very good point. That Again, it's look, feel, move. You feel that he's sore in his shoulders. Often this is enough for us to stop and say, okay, let's go take a set of x-rays. To actually see if he can move is very important. If you're locked in internal rotation, that's a classic sign of a posterior shoulder dislocation, uh, which he very well might have since he's got it on both sides. Often when you do it, you'll send them for the x-ray. The x-ray tech, when they take the films, they take three views. They take internal rotation, external rotation, and then either a transcapular or an axillary view. And they'll often tell you, unable to externally rotate. And that's often the first clue that you get, oh man, I never really moved him. Maybe he's got a, dislocate, a posterior dislocation of his shoulder. 
So that's one of the clues when the X-ray bag comes back or the films come back and you've only got two views instead of your standard three, that think maybe he's got it. Uh, a posterior shoulder dislocation is very uncommon. But again, things that are uncommon are commonly missed. It's so, about, what, about 3% of shoulder dislocations? Yeah, something, something like that. 2 3% is what they sort of talk about. But it may be, and it's associated with the three E's that we talk about as well, So, which are electricity, ethanol, and epilepsy. So he did have a hypoglycemic event, but it's possible that if we're putting this all together, that maybe he had a seizure and that's what caused it. And just going back to your look part of the uh, physical exam, that often if there's an anterior shoulder dislocation, you get a squared off appearance um, to the shoulder joint. Whereas if there's a posterior, then you'll see a very prominent coracoid and uh, the humeral head can look posteriorly displaced relative to the, the clavicle. The axillary view some hospitals use, because you can't tell on the AP if the humeral head's out in front or if it's out behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why you need something that shows the relativity of the humeral head to the glenoid. A transcapular view is another version of, basically, it's, it's a type of an axillary view in a sense, and that that's what it's really intended to do, is to show you the, the humeral head relative to the glenoid, and it's actually shot down the spine of the scapula. The problem is that sometimes it's not shot properly, and if it's not shot down the spine of the scapula, uh, you may have, it may sort of mimic a dislocation, or it may take a posterior dislocation and mimic it to be an anatomic position. So you need to be able to, just as we assess C-spine films, and make sure you see the top of T1 and you know it's an adequate film and all that sort of stuff. You need to be able to assess a transcapular view and make sure it's shot properly down the spine of the scapula and you don't have sort of a wide shadow, a wide image uh, of the length of the scapula. If you do, it means it wasn't really shot down the spine of the scapula, down the proper plane, and you should send them back for a proper view. So with the transcapular, you don't have the problem of having to move the patient around too much? The... Correct. They okay. can just sit in whatever position they are, and it's the tech that moves the beam around to match the scapula. So they're shooting down the, the long axis of the scapula, mm-hmm. uh, the thin way, the thin side of the slice of the scapula. And that's what you really should see on the x-rays. You should see a very thin slice of the scapula. If you see a wide, more like a V, as opposed to a very tight little sort of you know oblong sort of shape for the, for the outline of the scapula going... Uh, from superior to inferior. If it's more like a V, then it's not really shot down the spine of the scapula. Okay. And then from that, you're getting what we call a Mercedes-Benz sign. That cool. uh, in normal shoulder anatomy, the humeral head looks like the circle part of the Mercedes-Benz symbol, and then you get three lines of the uh, of the scapula that should be centered within the humeral head. And if it's off center, then you suspect a dislocation. In my experience, I've often been called over to x-ray to put the patient into abduction because the tech's afraid to move them. And it's not that the patient can't or won't. It's just that the the tech is often scared that they're going to make something worse. And you may need to go over with a little bit of fentanyl in your pocket to uh, administer to help the patient out. But often with gentle movement, you can get them in the position that's necessary for a good axillary view. On the x-ray... Are there any are there any things you're looking for in particular with a posterior dislocation that might give you a clue to, that that it's actually dislocated? On the AP view, there's a classic finding called the light bulb sign, where um, because the humeral head is so significantly internally rotated, you no longer get the uh, almost like a club shape that the greater tuberosity gives you on a, a normal AP. The uh, humerus is so rotated that the neck and head or end on, and look round like a light bulb. So that's one sign mm-hmm. that it's round and not like a club. And do you find that one useful, or is that one sort of an easy-to-miss miss one? That's subtle. 
It's yeah. a subtle one, okay. It's like the 5% pneumothorax. If you look for it, you can sometimes see it, right. but it, it, you won't be able to hang your hat on it. Okay. It's often in retrospect, you go, oh yeah, look, there's a light bulb sign. I see, okay. And then is, is, there, is there something like uh, a Hill-Sachs deformity or something like that for a posterior dislocation? There is a reverse hill sacs, but sometimes you see these only on recurrent dislocation. If you only get the two pictures, if you only get an AP and one of those relative shots, and they can't give you the external rotation view because the patient can't, that's another clue, even though you don't really necessarily see it on the x-ray. It's just the films that were available to you, the, the, the views that are available to you, that's sometimes a clue as to what they might have. Okay, so we should look carefully for the light bulb sign and the reverse hill sacs deformity. If they're there, then we've clinched the diagnosis. These are all very subtle, and if you suspect something, sending them back for an axillary view or a transcapular view uh, might help you just to determine whether it's actually in the socket or not. Right. So either an axillary or transcapular should be part of a routine series of x-rays that they should do for you. Um, but you're right if you see it. And, and these, are, these are commonly missed. 80% of posterior dislocations of the shoulders are missed by the initially treating physician. Okay. So once you diagnose that this is a dislocation, how do you reduce it? Well, you want to make sure that there is no fracture, that if you try to do a reduction, you're not going to displace a fracture. Uh, if there were a fracture, then you'd be getting an orthopod to do that most likely in an operative uh, setting. But if you have an isolated dislocation, then there's any number of different uh, techniques that can be used to reduce it, almost all done with some kind of procedural sedation and in some version of traction and counter-traction. The one that we talk, if we ever teach residents and talk to them about, is actually standing behind the patient. And the patient's arm is adducted, and it's they're locked sort of in internal rotation. Uh, you would put your, let's say it's the right shoulder that's out, you put your left hand uh, on top of their shoulder with your, your left thumb pressing on their humeral head. Your other arm pulls traction, so on the elbow in the brachial area, you're pulling down, giving longitudinal traction on the humerus, and then either you or you get an assistant to slowly externally rotate. So it's a combination of three. It's posterior pressure on the humeral head, longitudinal traction on the humerus, and then slowly try to get them to externally rotate. And you may be able to pop them back in. And I think key in a lot of this is making sure that they're appropriately relaxed. And uh, if you have someone who's awakened in pain, then they're going to fight against you and you're going to be having a tough time getting it back in. Also, with the posterior dislocations, if you have a, a defect in the humeral head where it's actually impacted on the glenoid rib, it may be stuck on there pretty hard and it may be difficult if you have a quarter or so of the surface area impacted to actually dislodge it uh, in a closed reduction fashion. And similarly, a lot of posterior shoulder dislocations will present very late to the emergency department. And the longer a joint's been uh, dislocated, the more difficult it is to put it in under closed reduction documentation for your shoulder dislocation should always include a neurovascular assessment and making sure that you document their sensation over the sergeant's patch or the deltoid to make sure that there hasn't been any nerve entrapment and that if you have reduced the dislocation that they still have full motor function and sensation in the, uh, the rest of the arm. So now that we've diagnosed a posterior shoulder dislocation, what's the best way to immobilize these patients? There's some controversy as to how exactly it should be immobilized. Some people uh, talk about trying to immobilize them in varying degrees of external rotation while maintaining the shoulder at a neutral position. So basically down the arm down along the side. So you're not AB or adducted and you are not flexed or extended in the shoulder, just a neutral arm. And then whether or not you have the, uh, the shoulder mobilized 
across the body as per a typical anterior dislocation or whether you'd have them in varying degrees of uh, external rotation, uh, which would be somewhat challenging to put your patient in that position and get them to keep it there for a few weeks. Um, and bottom line is I would probably have my own orthopod make recommendations on how they wanted the patient immobilized. Sure. And my understanding is that even with anterior shoulder dislocations, which are really, really common, there's a lot of controversy surrounding how much external rotation you put them in. Yeah, whether you put them in traditionally internal rotation, immobilize them. You know, some studies have suggested external rotation, that's how you immobilize them. The Swedish studies come out after 25 years of following patients saying no immobilization is necessary for acute primary uh, anterior shoulder dislocations. And in the elderly, their ligaments are, are torn and their, their reparative powers are much less. So there's no value really in immobilizing an elderly person. So if a 75-year-old has a first-time dislocation of their shoulder, we give them a sling and we want them moving right away. A rule that used to be used was 8 minus your decade of life. So if you're 72 years of age, you're 8 minus 8, zero weeks of immobilization. If you're 30 years or say 25 years old, 8 minus your third decade of life is 5 weeks of immobilization. Then it got moved to, okay, eight minus your decade of life to a maximum of three weeks. And now even that may be coming down to, you know what, some people are saying, just give them a sling right away and let them declare themselves. The older the patient, the more mobility you want them to have. So you wouldn't be using a full shoulder mobilizer for an elderly patient with a dislocation. Um, If you had a teenager who then has a very high chance of recurrent dislocations, that would be the one patient that I'd be much more keen on having in a full immobilizer just to try to get it to scar down and... Uh, stiffen up a little bit for them. Let's review some of the key features of this case. First, in the absence of trauma, posterior shoulder dislocation is virtually pathognomonic of a seizure. As the incidence of diabetes is increasing, so is the incidence of hypoglycemia and associated seizures, which means while posterior dislocations are quite rare, only about 3% of shoulder dislocations, they are on the rise. Other patients that you should be suspicious for this diagnosis are alcohol or drug-related seizures, uh, patients suffering from electrocution, and high-energy trauma. 15% of these posterior dislocations are bilateral, and 50 to 80% are missed on the first visit because they're very difficult to pick up on the x-ray. The mechanism is an axial force with the shoulder internally rotated and abducted. On the x-ray, the key things to look for are a reverse Hillsocks deformity, which is an anterior impression of the humeral head. And the reason why posterior shoulder dislocations are important to pick up on the first visit is that over time, this reverse Hillsocks deformity enlarges and becomes corticated from grinding and eventually leads to osteoarthritis. Some of the other key diagnostic features are that the patient tends to hold their arm fixed internal rotation. They have a mechanical block to external rotation, which is the most consistent finding. It's caused by engagement of the reverse Hillsocks deformity on the posterior aspect of the glenoid. Try and get an axillary view which is often diagnostic, but sometimes difficult to perform due to limited abduction. And reduction should be attempted in the emergency department if less than about 50% of the humeral head articular surface is involved and if dislocation is in within six weeks of injury.
Otherwise, consult Ortho for consideration of operative management. Moving on to our last case here, we have a 29-year-old man who comes in by ambulance. He was found lying on the ground in an alleyway in between two buildings. EMS could not get any history as the patient was nonverbal. On arrival in the emergency department, he appeared very agitated but alert, sitting up in the stretcher. He was very sweaty. His vital signs were heart rate of 130, blood pressure of 170 on 110, respiratory rate of 20, O2 sat of 99%, and a temp of 37.8. His glucometer was normal. His primary survey revealed stable ABCs. His pupils were dilated and reactive. His GCS was 12 on account of him being nonverbal. He was disrobed, and we discovered crack pipes in his pockets. An IV was started, and blood work was sent. Two milligrams of IV Ativan was given for presumed sympathomimetic toxidrome and for agitation. A cervical collar was placed. On secondary survey, there were no signs of head injury. C-spine was difficult to assess as the patient was nonverbal. Chest and abdo exam were unremarkable, and a fast exam of his belly was negative. The patient was tender to palpation everywhere on his lower extremities. While he was moving his arms and appeared agitated, he was not moving his legs at all. Both of his ankles and feet appeared swollen with no obvious deformity. His pedal pulses were not attainable by palpation. With a handheld Doppler, we were able to confirm pedal pulses. Lower extremity sensation was impossible to attain, as well as reflexes. Another 2 mg of IV Ativan was given due to ongoing agitation, and he was sent for x-rays of the C-spine, chest, pelvis, feet, and ankles. He continued to be agitated and sweaty, and finally, after a total of 10 mg IV Ativan, he started to talk. All he could say was that it hurts all over, he couldn't move anything, and he kept on requesting for water over and over. His blood work by now had come back, which showed a CPK of more than 5,000. So a 2-liter bolus of normal saline was given. When the x-rays came back, they were all read as normal. The patient was re-examined, and now that he was more alert, the tenderness in his legs was zeroed in mostly on his heels and bilateral malleoli, as well as his L-spine. He was then sent for L-spine x-rays, which showed multiple compression fractures. It turned out that his drug dealer lived on the fifth floor and wasn't home, so the patient tried climbing the fire escape and fell. So Dr. Momin, what would you do next in this case? Primarily, I think you're dealing with a, a multiple trauma case here, in which case you want to be extremely careful to maintain C-spine protection and uh, spinal precautions in terms of his lumbar spine, given as you're really not sure at this point if there's any element of paralysis or not. Um, you'd mentioned the elevated CK, and certainly in a, a patient who now we know has fallen, but even prior to that seemed to have multiple injuries and may have been lying on the ground for a long time, rhabdomyolysis is certainly a concern, so you want to make sure that appropriate kidney function and CK blood work is sent off and appropriate intravenous hydration. And are there any x-rays that you think we need done in this patient? Now that you've been able to uh, get him localizing his pain better and he tells you that his heels hurt, 
you want to make sure that you get dedicated use of the calcanei. Certainly a fall from a height um, is a, a high risk for causing a calcaneus fracture. Um, it's a bit surprising that his foot x-rays looked perfectly normal. Other than adding on the thoracic spine x-rays, you'd want to make sure that you got the calcaneus views. In this patient, he was actually sent back an appreciation of, of uh, non-displaced fractures in both calcanei. Well, certainly it takes a huge amount of force to fracture a calcaneus, and so you want to search for associated injuries, keeping in mind that not only is there a high risk of having extensive soft tissue injury, but also that about half of patients who have a calcaneus fracture have other fractures, either extremity or spinal, um, that about 7% will have a contralateral calcaneal fracture, about a quarter have other lower extremity fractures, and about 10% of some of patients who have calcaneus fractures will have spinal injuries, usually lumbar compression fractures. So on your lateral view of the foot, you can assess an angle called Bowler's angle. Google images can also be used to help you uh, refresh exactly how to measure Bowler's angle. But Bowler's angle uh, looks at whether or not there's any compression fracture of the calcaneus. You draw a couple lines, one from the posterior tuberosity to the apex of the uh, calcaneus and the other from the apex to the uh, anterior process. And normally it's 20 to 40 degrees, but if you have it uh, decreased to less than 20 degrees, then you suspect a compression fracture. And at that point, you will probably want to go on to get a CAT scan, primarily to see if there's uh, a fracture that goes intra-articular or extra-articular. And the joint that we're talking about here is the subtalar joint. And the subtalar joint is the uh, articulation of the talus and the calcaneus or the talocalcaneal joint, which if, uh, if there is any displacement there at all, needs to be perfectly anatomically aligned surgically or else you wind up with uh, quite severe arthritic problems down the line and permanent disability. As soon as you diagnose a calcaneus fracture, you get ortho involved right away, eh? 25% of calcaneus fractures can be extra-articular where they do not involve the subtalar joint, and in which case you may not need immediate ortho uh, involvement if you're sure that it's not involving the articular surface. The extra-articular fractures can be conservatively managed with very nicely padded casts and uh, subtalar joint involvement or an intra-articular fracture, then you need immediate ortho involvement. And when I say immediate uh, ortho involvement, there will be significant soft tissue swelling in an intraarticular fracture, which will not allow for an immediate OR. They will need to wait until the swelling subsides. They, they will not operate immediately, but you would want to make sure that your orthopod knew about this injury so they could plan their follow-up appropriately. From an emergency physician point of view, things that you can do to help the patient are to um, ice and elevate the limb appropriately immobilize it in a really well padded splint so that you minimize any chance of fracture blisters which will then delay surgical uh, options. CT showed uh, stable L-spine compression fractures and bilateral comminuted calcaneus fractures and in fact the calcaneus fractures on the CT were shown to be intra-articular and displaced Whereas on the x-ray, it wasn't that obvious that, that they were displaced and that they were possibly intra-articular. 
compartment syndrome uh, was ruled out by serial uh, compartment pressures. The patient was taken to the OR for an ORF uh, of calcaneus fractures. He was admitted to the floor and stayed for about six weeks. After he was discharged, he was, he was lost to follow up. When can you be pretty sure on the x-ray that you're not dealing with an intraarticular or a displaced uh, fracture that might require a CT? Fundamentally, you probably are going to end up getting a CT scan on pretty much all calcaneus fractures. If you quite clearly can see that it's intraarticular, then you're automatically needing a CT at some point in the next few days to see if it's going to require surgery or not. Because if there's any displacement at all, any lack of anatomic alignment, then you're going to need perfect reduction in the OR. However, even with extraarticular fractures, if there's any element of displacement, then they will also need open reduction and internal fixation, most likely, and uh, ultimately will need a CT scan to help clarify that because x-rays simply can't give you a good enough picture. That said, it doesn't have to be done in the first hour of the patient being in your eMERGE. They uh, aren't going to get an immediate operation. The surgeons almost all will wait till the soft tissue swelling subsides, and therefore you have a, a period of time of likely days to get the CAT scan done, and that's likely something that the orthopedic surgeon can help manage. I see. So, so a CT isn't isn't time sensitive like it is, say, in a hip fracture. Precisely. Okay. So, generally speaking, for these calcaneus fractures, what's the morbidity like? Well, looking into this, I was quite shocked at the uh, the length of disability caused by the calcaneal fractures. I was struck that a fifth of those will be totally incapacitated for up to three years and partially impaired for up to five years after their their calcaneal fracture. So it's a, wow. it's a big deal. We need to absolutely manage it uh, as perfectly as possible. And that even in patients who are considered to have had optimal treatment, 50% of them have long-term problems. So you definitely want your specialist involved as soon as possible, uh, anticipating that they're going to be complications. These calcaneus fractures are brutal injuries. In order to increase your yield of picking up these nasty fractures, don't forget to order a Harris view or an axial view uh, and to look at Bowler's angle. Remember, it normally varies from about 20 to 40 degrees and anything less than 20 degrees suggests a compression fracture. You can look that up on Google Images, and there's uh, lots available if you need to uh, review that. Don't forget also to look for associated injuries. More than 50% of these patients will have associated extremity or spinal fractures. So look carefully for those. The key here, calcaneus fractures, is to differentiate between extraarticular and intraarticular fractures. The intraarticular ones, which comprise about 75% of the fractures, are more common and they're the ones that usually need surgery and for which you should consult orthopedics right away for them. Uh, the extraarticular ones uh, tend to do better and tend to respond to conservative management. Uh, however, sometimes you can't tell whether it's extraarticular or intraarticular on the x-ray, so you have to go on to CT. Although, as Dr. Momin was suggesting, it's not very time sensitive like say a hip fracture is.
As I mentioned in the introduction, Dr. Sayal is one of the co-directors for the North York General Hospital Emergency Medicine Update Conference, which is the biggest emergency medicine conference in Canada. And Dr. Sayal, tell us about uh, what new exciting things are going to be there this year in the, in the conference. Well, this year's our 23rd year, and uh, we're very lucky to have a, a, a fine group of, of volunteers on our committee that put this together, and we're very excited with this year's program. The dates are May 6th to 8th, uh, 2010, at the Royal York Hotel again in Toronto. Uh, we're lucky this year we've got a number of fantastic speakers. Dr. Ramal Matu, who's probably one of North America's leading EM uh, educators. He's from uh, John Hopkins in Maryland. He's coming back. Dr. Angelo Mikrogianakis is out in Calgary now, who does, uh, uh, who's an expert pediatric speaker. Dr. Ray Wiss is our keynote speaker, talking about his experience in Afghanistan. And we also have Dr. Charles Tatter speaking this year, who's a, a neurosurgeon uh, who's been in the news lately uh, for all the work that he's doing on uh, head injury prevention. And he'll talk to us about the whole spectrum of head injury that, uh, that's coming across our emergency departments. Uh, and uh, our website is emupdate.ca. Great. And uh, are you going to be speaking at the conference? Uh, I will be. And in fact, you will be as well. So we'll both be there uh, giving seminars. Great. I'm looking forward. Okay. Thank you very much. Some of the more well-known speakers at the North York General Conference will also be here on emergency medicine cases in the upcoming months, like Walter Himmel, Eric Latofsky, and Dan Cass. We've got tons of fascinating, stimulating, and practice-changing pearls for you in the upcoming episodes. I'm totally psyched. Please go to the website, emergencymedicinecases.com, and give us your feedback, either by clicking on the comments section of each episode or by emailing me at anton at emergencymedicinecases.com. Remember that subscriptions are free until September 2010. And for the quote of the month... This month, we've got a classic from good old Albert Einstein. Strange is our situation here upon Earth. From the standpoint of daily life, there is one thing we do know, that we are here for the sake of others. Above all, for those whose smile and well-being our own happiness depends, and also for the countless unknown souls with whose fate we are connected by a bond of sympathy. Many times a day, I realize how much my own outer and inner life is built upon the labors of others, both living and dead, and how earnestly I must exert myself in order to give in return as much as I have received and am still receiving. Until next time, have a good one. <laughs>